you're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2021, bringing you fresh and innovative content in literature and authorship. Brought to you by the Art and Radio Ramadan 365. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Ikra Book Festival. My name is Maria Sharif and we are going to be starting our next session where I will welcome Ehsan Masood, who will be discussing the topic of science and Islam. We also have uh, Mikhail Amjad, um, who will be interviewing um, Ehsan. So, Assalamu alaikum, Mikhail. I can see you are on. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, so Essen Masood is a science and policy writer, journalist and broadcaster who's written for New Scientist, The Times, The Guardian and Nature, where he's currently bureau chief for Africa and the Middle East and uh, Penn's editorials. His books include Dry, Life Without Water, GDP, The World's Most Powerful Formula and Why It Must Now Change, and Science and Islam, A History, which is here to discuss with us today. Um, we're honoured and grateful to have you here with us today. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I'd like to begin by inviting you to read a little from your book. I will do. Thank you, Mikhail. It's a real pleasure to be with you uh, and with all of your uh, all of your viewers and listeners. It's been a while, but I'm going to start really by reading from um, the prologue. <clears throat> so picture, if you will, images from the 1969 moon landings those grainy black and white photos or those slow motion TV shots of rockets and astronauts in space and the awe-inspired spectators watching from below. Or recall the television footage from 2000 when the human genome was sequenced and the news announced jointly by the presidents of the USA and the UK. What do these and so many more pictures of modern scientific discovery tell us? Well, one message is very clear, that science is more than just science. It's the result of the vision of those that govern us about where they want to take their societies into the future. The moon landings told anyone watching that here was an empire at the top of its game. Having established its domain on Earth, the United States, the most technologically advanced savvy of its age, was ready to claim the heavens or in the very least, a small part of it. More than a thousand years ago, another empire, an empire created by the coming of Islam, was also at the top of its form. This empire was in fact a network of caliphates united by a belief in God and the teachings of the prophet. Its rulers and citizens spanned Indonesia to Spain and the last of the caliphates ended close in the 1920s with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Science in Islam, the book, describes the scientific revolution that took place during these empires between the 8th and the 16th centuries. It's a story about the discoveries and the inventions of a sophisticated culture and civilization, the political and the religious conditions surrounding it, and an extraordinary cast of characters scientists, engineers, and their patrons, their funders, who helped to make it all happen. It was an age when religion and science had a much more closer relationship than they do today. And perhaps paradoxically, it was a need of religions that in some ways helped to advance new knowledge. Shall I stop there? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, that's yeah, that's absolutely fine. Uh, thank you yeah. very much. Good. Uh, so the first question that I had uh, for you was that um, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about the genesis of this book. Uh, so where did the inception of this book come from? So, sorry, it's going to suddenly become very bright here. So <laughs> draw my blind. Um, there were sort of really ma many different, there wasn't one um, particular driver. I think there were many, many motivations. I mean, I was, I suspect like most of most of you, most of everyone on the call, I was born into a Muslim family. And I was also a very keen, not a very good, but a very keen science student. And the science that I'd learned or was learning in school was in those days, it was much, much more constrained and um, and quite narrow than even science education today. I mean, it's, I'm much less in touch now with school science, but back in the 1970s, I I grew up in the north of England. And, um, and most of the science that we did for GCSE and A-levels and in our university days was essentially the science of Europe. Um, and there was almost no uh, acknowledgement that it was always, it is always a very global enterprise and it has been and it will always be. It was in a sense, I suppose you could say it was a very nationalist view of what science is. Um, and then, you know, so there's always this curiosity that you get, I guess, when you do the sorts of jobs, jobs that I do in journalism. And then at the same time, I was also uh, spending a lot of my time in the countries of the Islamic world, particularly in Asia and the Middle East and parts of Africa. And it's really quite striking how, again, everybody that I was coming in contact with, the people that I was interviewing for my stories or the places that I would visit, they were also, they'd essentially been, they would been imbibing the science that they had themselves taken from colonial times. Um, and the science education, again, was quite similar. So Newton and Hooke and Michael Faraday, and these were the sorts of people that they were. So again, they it felt like they were quite cut off, at least in their formal education from their own history. And so um, I was, uh, it's been a while now since I did the book, but it was part of a big BBC project to try and reintroduce um, the history of science, the history of Islamic era science to international audiences. And there were four parts to the project. There was a, um, a television series, a three-part TV series presented by Professor Jamal Khalili, which is on YouTube. Uh, there was the book that I wrote to accompany the series. Uh, then there was a, a radio program uh, that I presented. Uh, a three-part documentary on Radio 4 on science in the contemporary Islamic world. And then there was a three-part radio on the BBC World Service that Jim, that Professor Jim Al-Khalili presented, um, which was more closer to the, the TV. So there were basically four parts to this big project that they did, and the book was one of them. Thank you very much. Uh... Yeah, uh, the second question uh, that I was hoping to ask was that I was I was basically wondering. Obviously, for uh, the, the book forms part of this larger project, but uh, 
in and of itself, uh, who did you write the book for? Was there like a particular audience that you intended it to be for someone you wanted to communicate its message to? I think it's, it's, it's a really good question. I think most authors will say, and I'm probably the same, is that mostly we write for ourselves. Um, and, and in a way, you know, we do this partly uh, because we want to, you know, the, we have a deficiency of knowledge. We don't know many, many, many things. And so the process of writing a book can be tremendously educational. So I would probably say that the first reader was probably me. Um, and then I think in addition to that, you know, and also because it was sort of very much part of the project, it's very much aimed at a non-expert audience, at a, at a very uh, general audience. It's not a book for, it's not a work of scholarship and it's not a book for scholarly audiences. It's, it's based almost completely on scholarly sources and on interviews with people who are scholars, but it's very much aimed, it's a general interest audience. Uh, both Islamic audiences, Muslim audiences, and also um, uh, going beyond that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I personally, I found it to be very, very readable uh, and not, it, it didn't require much scientific understanding uh, for, for me to get through it. Um, so personally, I've had all of my formative education in the British, here in the British Isles, in Ireland and then in Scotland. Uh, and so the history of science as it pertains to Islam is not something that's ever taught here. Um, there's a, we learn a bit about Newton and Einstein and uh, some of those key figures like Boyle. Uh, definitely it's focused in figures who are from here as well. Uh, and so I guess that reflects sort of nationalist uh, view of science education that we were talking about. But from speaking to, for example, my parents who study, who grew up and studied in Pakistan or people who studied in other par parts of the Islamic world, um, it seems that the sort of history of, you know, uh, science and Islam isn't really taught there either. Um, do, does that reflect your experiences or, and uh, if so, why do you think that is? I think you're right, uh, Mikhail. Um, I, I couldn't, again, I, I, I spent uh, about five years um, at school in Pakistan um, in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. I went to English medium, English language schools. Um, so it probably wasn't completely reflective of because uh, they have many different educational systems in lots of different languages. But I think on balance, because countries that were once colonized had their educational journeys interrupted. And um, you know, they would have been on a particular trajectory in whichever part of the world you might be in or whichever linguistic sort of group you're, you're with. And so for, for you know, Punjabi speaking or Sindhi speaking or Urdu speaking audiences, they would have had a particular, uh, I guess, research or scientific culture. And of course, after decolonization in 1947, um, India, what was then the United India, and uh, now the three countries of Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, you know, they had had about a good sort of 100, 150 years of uh, completely immersive British-inspired or British-dominated education. 
And so after decolonization, and I went to school in the 70s, which was still only 20, 25 years after decolonization, there were still many, many remnants uh, of that. And so I don't think necessarily the history of science really connected or reconnected with the scientific histories of those particular cultures. Um, and, uh, but I think, I, I do think things have, have changed since then and I can, I'm not in touch. I know they've been changing in Britain. There've been you know, various curriculum reforms, you know, some, um, so there's been some recognition at least. I think the biggest story really is, and the biggest story of the book, even though it's a, it's a particular moment in time and it's a particular moment in culture, is that we don't really get to scientific discovery and invention without knowing what other people are doing. And then that's how, that's how research builds. You know, every paper that you look at you know, has a reference list at the end. That reference list, those 10 or 15 other papers are the works of other people. And so really what a lot of um, the, my book is about is uh, the influences that led to Islamic science, science in the Islamic empires, and then how that was then contributing to later developments and developments in the empires themselves. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a kind of tragedy in that to my mind where, because you talk about in the book, you know, like um, in terms of how, you know, uh, the science of like the Islamic golden age is influenced what is it, what we have now in Western science. And even uh, I recall reading something that really fascinated me and they're about the sort of institution of the university as it's realized now, a lot of its architecture uh, is drawn from the sort of uh, institutes of learning of that era. Uh, the idea of having these um, big open courtyards with sort of teaching uh, buildings all around them, or even the existence of like a diploma that uh, grants you the right to teach, uh, that all of this should be um, inherited uh, into the sort of Western scientific tradition, but then to have that all sort of overwrite what was already there, I guess, to my mind, it, it, it seems like there's a kind of tragedy to it. Um, the next question that I wanted to ask was that while you were researching and writing this book, um, was there anything that sort of startled or surprised you to learn? I'm going to, Mikhail, I'm going to come to that question. I just want to continue, actually, with your, just the thought that you, um, yeah, absolutely. you started, because in a sense, you know, I totally agree with you that it's a tragedy that so much of, um, maybe we'll, we, you know, we might come on to this a little later. Um, I think, from, to my mind, I think the tragedy isn't that, you know, so many of the things we take for granted, you know, like qualifications and um, university architecture, you know, come from um, the Islamic tradition or come from Eastern traditions and more, more broadly. I think the tragedy is, is, that, is that they were never acknowledged because all of you know, knowledge is a continuum, it builds. The things we have now, the fields that you're in, that I'm in, these are, you know, these have a history and we're building constantly. As we're discovering and inventing, we're building from what came before us. We have to, that's how the scientific process works. I think the tragedy is when you don't acknowledge. Now, in today's world, you know, for those of you who are students, we call it plagiarism, right? And there are really strict rules now about plagiarism where you're trying to pass off someone else's work as your own. And I think that for me is the big tragedy when of what Western science 
and other scientific traditions have done is to say, hey, we did all this stuff and it all came from us, when in fact there's been a long-term continuum. And the kind of interesting thing for me in, in writing the book and going back to your question, one of the things that did surprise me, uh, and, I, and I think it was, I, I don't think I was necessarily expecting it, is that when you look at the manuscripts written in Persian or in Arabic, I don't read them well, but you know, I certainly don't read Persian at all in fact, you, you look in the margins and, um, and there is a lot of effort to acknowledge the previous sources wherever they might be. And so if there was a particular scholar writing about something, let's say in astronomy or in mathematics, they would say, here's what Euclid said in geometry, or if it's to do with, you know, here's what Ptolemy might have said about the motion of the planets. And so there's very much a, a clear acknowledgement that, you know, that we are inheritors of a tradition. We're transient and we're building and discovering and inventing. And we will have to pass on the baton to someone else. And so knowledge is moving, it's a continuum. I think that's the thing that did, did well, certainly was one of, the, one of the surprises. I think the other great surprise, and again, you know, going back to tragedy was, um, I, was in, I was expecting, so I did a lot of travel uh, when I was doing the book and I was also traveling just for my job. And so in a way, the two coincided. And I was expecting that there would be more evidence of Islamic scientific architecture, and there's hardly any in the world. There's, it's mostly been destroyed. Um, and in fact, I was in Egypt at one point, and um, I'd managed to um, locate the, um, the site of a hospital, of a very old hospital uh, from the ninth century. And I was very excited. Oh, you know, found this hospital. It's like amazing. Um, you know, ready with my camera, and I went with a friend, and you know, we were. Uh, and when we turned up there, it was being demolished uh, to make way for a block of flats. Uh, there was no um, preservation order, you know, no listed, no system of listed status. Um, it was it was in Egypt, and it was just very very sad. Um, it was just an old building. It happened to be attached to the mosque. The mosque was preserved, um, the Sultan Kalawun complex, but the actual site of the hospital. And a little research laboratory in the hospital was all, we were just, it was literally being demolished very much in front of our eyes. And I think, you know, that was also just something that was kind of a bit, really quite, really, really quite, uh, quite sad to see. But no, many, many, many more things that did surprise me. Got to read the book to find them. <laughs> Absolutely. Um... Another thing that I was curious about, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of different uh, figures that you discuss in the book, sort of key, uh, sort of personalities from the sort of uh, sort of golden age of Islamic science. If you had to pick one of those historical figures to sort of maybe sit down and converse with, or someone, if there's someone who particularly fascinates you, uh, who would that be? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, I thought you might ask that. Um, it's really, it's a really hard question. I would, I would pick three. I'm going to be, I'm going to be naughty, and I'm going to pick three. Absolutely. Um, I think I'd want to pick Ibn Sina from um, the 900s. Uh, I think his great attraction for me was that he was born uh, in one of what I'm today, you know, the one of the more minority traditions. He was in the, from an Ismaili family. Many of the scientists, in fact, came from minorities. That's, in, that's another 
interesting and for me quite a surprising finding. I wasn't expecting it. Um, and because I, I myself come from the majority Sunni uh, communities. So Ibn Sina was, he was a physician. He did some maths. He had a great body of philosophy. Uh, he was an experimentalist. Um, and it's really surprising to the sort of modern in our age because so much of the research and the science that we all do or write about is so siloed. Like Mikhaila, you know, you're a person in the world of science, but it would be quite a surprise if you, alongside, you know, the work that you do in computational sciences, if you were then doing philosophy of language, for example, or something like that, unless I guess it had to do with data science, I suppose there is some convergence, but so the fact that, and then not only was he in each of these sort of several different fields, but he was making very notable contributions to all of them. Um, I think that was, you know, so I'd love to be able to sit down with him and say like, how do you do that? Because of course for us these days, that's such a big surprise. I, I would love, so a lot of my um, science journalism is around the, um, I, I, I cover uh, the economy and finance of science. That's my interest and my sort of specialist area within science journalism. So I, I do, I look at economic and financial issues. Um, and of course, you know, science is expensive. We know this in the pandemic. Um, the rich countries are vaccinated because they've got the ability to develop or buy the infrastructure for vaccinations and so on. And so, of course, then you had a similar sort of thing. You had, you know, rich patrons. And one of them, one of the earlier Basid uh, Khalifas was Al-Ma'mun. And he's a really he's a very Marmite sort of character. He is a big hero to a lot of people because he I was absolutely besotted with science and technology. He would go on expeditions to measure the circumference of the earth. He would do experiments himself. <clears throat> you know, he funded and built libraries and he's really popular, very popular figure for some. But if you talk to people who are scholars of religion, uh, particularly on the sort of more theological side, theologians, they take a very different view because he was a real rationalist and he believed in lots of rational explanations for belief and, you know, believed in cause and effect. Um, he believed uh, very controversially then and still now, of course, uh, that there were many aspects of faith which are very much... Um, uh, you know, he, he, he was a little bit like Ibn Sina and, and, and other scholars of the time. You know, he just had a very materialist, rationalist take on, on belief, um, which is not the mainstream view then. And it certainly still isn't the mainstream view now. But he had that view. Now, he wasn't an ordinary guy. He was someone who was very powerful. And he tried to impose it on his people. Uh, with really tragic consequences. There were, you know, there were deaths, there was a lot of violence. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, it kind of pitted science because it was being supported by a powerful person against the masses, against people uh, who then looked at science as this very evil, undesirable thing, which would take people away from ordinary belief. And I think it had a quite a lasting impact and so I'd be interested to perhaps talk to him if I could. Um, who else? Um, I think 
I, I'd also, he doesn't feature a huge amount in the book, but I'd be really fascinated to, to see if, you know, to learn more about Al-Ghazali, of course, another figure who has these sort of twin um, perceptions, you know, amongst the sort of uh, historians of Islamic science, he's also a controversial figure because of the great epiphany that he had, you know, at one point he was quite a rationalist, but then, you know, he had some kind of big um, turnaround, possibly to do with health, possibly to do with other things. And of course he then changed his mind um, and became much more, um, much different uh, in a way. And I think there are so many unanswered questions that we don't find in the manuscripts. I mean, one of the real, um, stumbling blocks in a way for the person who studies this is that your your um the medium of your knowledge is the manuscript the people are all dead there are no recordings there's no television there's no radio there's no audio um and the manuscript sometimes can be very imperfect because it might be a few pages um you know recently there was the discovery of the uh, the quran manuscripts from Birmingham and you know uh, and it's so difficult when that happens because you don't know what came before and what was after and so and we have the same sort of problem so I think being able to speak to people is really really important very powerful so those would be my three Al-Ghazali, Ibn Sina and Al-Ma'mun, the Khalifa. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all really fascinating choices, I think. Um, I know that uh, Al-Ghazali is famous for his sort of incoherence of the philosophers, That's right? right yeah. sort of like exactly. a criticism of all the more rationalist mm. uh, yeah. figures. Uh, yeah, um, I remember you, it, just, uh, it, it just came to my mind because you were talking about how, you know, modern science is a lot more siloed off. I, I was really amazed to read there, uh, right at the beginning of the book, uh, you mentioned Omar Khayyam, who I think is well, mostly known for his poetry. And uh, people who know him, know him as the, you know, the writer of his rabbit. But I was really fascinated to hear that he was a mathematician who'd done all sorts of work with, you know, quadratic equations and their solutions and stuff like that, which is all really, really relevant stuff for like sort of hard sciences. It's almost, the polar opposite of like the sort of poetry that you associate him with. So that was one that to me was really fascinating. Um, let me see. Uh, I th think I'm, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to uh, read off these audience questions because there's a couple of them. Here. Sure, no, go right ahead. I yeah. mean, just on Omar Khayyam, of course, if you talk to a mathematician, they would say mathematics is poetry. <laughs> uh, people, and, and in fact, I, I talked to a lot of coders and they often say, I, I hear this more and more and more that coding is like there's a sort of there's a there's a there's a, a real art uh, to um, uh, you know to the type of coding and how and to the language of coding and there are different ways of almost sort of linguistic uh, similarities when you. Um, but I don't code very well. Yeah, least, well, not to be too self-aggrandizing, but as a computer scientist, I definitely feel that way about it. <laughs> uh, yes, go, there go was ahead. A... Yeah, you got some questions. Uh, so there was a question here that uh, was after researching this topic. Do you think that science always? Do you think that science follows the money? Uh, like you said, so obviously you spoke about about Al Mamun, and it sounds like he was a big sort of financial supporter of science. Uh, do you think that uh, 
it's, I suppose specifically within the world of, sort of like Islamic science or more broadly, do you think that the science always follows the money or uh, is it, or is it sort of like brought more broadly driven by like a, a search to explore new territories, the way the question's phrased? Good question. That's a good question. I mean, I think, so it, 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 it's always needed money, um, you know, in the very, very sort of most basic, in the most basic sense, uh, there's an understanding, you know, going back to the Islamic period before then too, that um, that scholars kind of need to be left alone, and you know, good people with ideas and with knowledge should be funded uh, to be able to discover and invent and collaborate and travel. Travel is, has always been very important, corresponding with other scholars, you know, through different ways, and so you know that that isn't a business. Um, so that has had to be funded. And the more you can fund, the more people like that you will have. And so in a sense, there's always been a strong uh, financial relationship to, to, to money in terms, of, in terms of science. Now, you know, there are not, not everyone or not every field needs lots of money. I think these days we're in a world where there's a real expectation that science is expensive. And you know, to be honest, it has become very expensive. It is very expensive. And there are various targets that countries now try and reach. You know, try to the, the, the real minimum is one percent of national income for most countries. That's an absolute minimum. Countries like the United Kingdom spend closer to two. Um, you know, more advanced technological countries in the south, in Southeast Asia, in Israel, in the United States, Germany, they spend upwards of three, four percent. Um, so, it's become and of course when that happens. Um, all kinds of other influences do do get in the way. Um, and nowadays we're in a, a period of time where uh, there is an expectation on the researcher to contribute to the economy through innovation. Um, and innovation has become a big thing. And I think that is, is definitely more recent. But it's also a, realize, a realization that, you know, science didn't always attract so much funding uh, at least in civilian terms, it probably has always in defense. Defense is a big, is always a big sink for scientists and for science money. But in civilian science, it hasn't always been so expensive. And so if you're expecting the taxpayer to fund your scholars, then they would want something back. And these days, the expectation from politicians and policymakers is that that should be some kind of economic return. But the principle that even when you have that, scholars should be left autonomous and they should be allowed to discover and to invent and learn without the heavy hand of the funder, whether it's the state or a business. That's a pretty strong principle and it applies globally. It's sometimes called the Haldane principle after one of the people who coined it. Um, so yeah, it's a mix of reasons, but money is important, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So here, another one of the audience questions here is, what is it that needs to be done to increase the prominence or increase the recognition of Muslim scientists in wider society? Sorry, could you say that one again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is it that needs to be done to increase the prominence and recognition of Muslim scientists in wider society? Oh, got to read my book. <laughs> <laughs> um it is so. Um, there was a around the time that my book came out, there was a, a really nice uh, project 
run by an NGO uh, that started in Manchester. I think it's now nationwide called, uh, oof, forget, forget its name, but the name of the project and the, and the book came out of it's called um, Thousand and One Inventions, I think it was. Um, and uh, so they they had a similar, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a much more nicely illustrated book, much bigger book uh, that um, describes many of the same things that I talk about in mine, but you know, theirs is much more, it's in fact, it's more readable. I hope it's still in print. But I know at the time they were working with the various curriculum writing bodies in the four nations, in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, and of course, you know, one of the, the, I have a lot of criticisms of the national curriculum, but one of the sort of, in a sense, advantages of a, of a national curriculum where they, they, these exist is that you, you sort of speak to one set of people if you're trying to persuade them to introduce innovations or to broaden out the curriculum. And I know that um, the, the, the founder of this particular project was Professor Salim Al-Hassan, who's at the University of Manchester. And I know him and Professor Salim and his teams are working with. So I think that's kind of quite important uh, to do. And I think, and this was, quite a while back and you know and I'm hoping that it, it would have had it would have made some kind of impact I think more broadly what I would really like to see is a recognition of the scientific heritage of all of of, of, of not just of the um, Islamic era but also from other cultures as well uh, we know hardly anything about China um, and China's extraordinary scientific heritage, which if those of you who are interested, I'd recommend um, a series of books by Joseph Needham, who's now died, and he wrote a, a big body of work called Science and Civilization in China. It ended up being 18 or 19 volumes and it wasn't finished. And, I mean, there, there, are, there are abridged versions and there are others who, who, who sort of built on that. Um, and the Needham Institute in Cambridge is sort of conducting or carrying on with, with that legacy. There's India, um, you know, there's lots of really good evidence uh, that so much of what Islamic scholars learnt in mathematics, in geometry, in architecture, you know, was done so at the same time or following the work of scholars from India, um, particularly algebra, uh, there's a manuscript at the Bodleian Library in Oxford called the Bakshali Manuscript, um, which has, you know, which dates from Buddhist times. And so there's all these little fragments and there's, you know, so much research that's happening. Um, you know, an area that I know next to nothing about is uh, what happened in Latin America. Um, and I think there's so much we could learn. So I think the idea that, you know, just as today's geneticists or people who work in AI, people who work in particle physics, you know, we're all inheritors of these international traditions. And I think it's that principle more than anything that I'd like to see more of. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'm going to pass uh, back to Mara, to Mara Shrif. Yeah. Thank you so much, Isana and Mikhail for that engaging topic. Um, Isan, I have a question that I was thinking about, which is, do you, have, in, in researching the book, 
did you notice a sort of contrast between the intentionality um, in terms of the scientific progress that was made within the Muslim world compared to what's generally the situation in the Western world? And, and for me, the, the example that's coming up is the, the atomic bomb, you know, what, did you notice a contrast or anything interesting about that? A really good question, Maureen. I'm glad you asked. Actually, it's. Um, I mean, there's. It's. It, it's. It's definitely. It's. It's really interesting, and it. And it's also something that I don't think I have um, a proper handle on. Only be, partly because. So there is a view amongst Islamic scholars that Islamic science um, has a. Uh, in a sense, a more benign intent, if I can put it that way. So, for example, weapons, as you say, weapons of mass destruction were less likely to have emerged. That, that's a question that I know scholars have um, and, and still debate. Weapons of mass destruction, you know, would not have arrived at um, in Islamic times. And I am myself, I'm not so sure, um, because the, um, I mean, it, going back to the example of Al-Mamun, I mean, he was extraordinarily ruthless person. And yes, he was very pro-science, but I think if he'd been around today, you know, the technology available to him was not the technology that we have at our disposal. And, you know, they didn't have um, access to WMDs in a sense, but they had their, I'm not, you know, the intent was to be the most powerful empire in the world and to be able to retain that power using whatever means at their disposal. So they use whatever technology they had. I'm not a great expert in, in older defense technologies, but, but in today's. And then if you fast forward the argument today, there's a really fascinating debate amongst um, scholars in Iran about the permissibility of weapons of mass destruction. And it's particularly live right now because of all of the arguments and the debates over Iran's nuclear program. And there are, there are fatwas that I've read from both Sunni and Shi sources that make it very clear that it's impermissible mm -hmm. for, a, um, uh, you know, for weapons of mass destruction uh, to be uh, developed. Um, but at the same time, you have um, a very avowedly Islamic countries like Pakistan, like Iran, you know, which, you know, still do that. And they find alternative support from mm -hmm. within the um, theological sources to do this. So I think it's, you know, I think in an absolutely ideal world, I would have probably agreed with you. But I think the reality is that if these are countries that want to retain military power, then they will find a way out it and they will probably use sources because that's how they feel that they can convince their citizens. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, Pakistan is very germane right now because one of the big figures in their nuclear program died uh, about 10 days ago, uh, A.Q. Khan, and I'm, going to, I'm writing his obituary for Nature, which we'll publish in, a, in about a week's time. And, you know, he, he's a complete hero to across the Islamic, not just in Pakistan, but across the Islamic world. Um, and yet, you know, he engaged in very clearly criminal activity, um, not only in the way he acquired bomb-making technology, but in the way that he profited from it. Um, 
but yet somehow for people of faith, people all people like us in a way, it's it's a you know he, he remains this sort of absolute icon, and what he did his achievement as an icon. So it's messy. So I think that's probably where I'll leave it. It's messy. Thank you so much, Islam, for that insight into science and Islam. And it's certainly a book that's going to be on my bookshelf very soon. Jazakallah. For more podcasts, search for RR365 wherever you get your podcasts.